verses 1 to 12. We will also be looking at Lord's Day 32, which I should have turned to this beforehand. Lord's Day 32, which can be found on page 44 in the back of the Psalter hymnal. Before we read these, though, let's again bow in a moment of prayer. Dear Father, thank you for this opportunity. And as we open your word, as we seek to learn from it, as we seek to let it sit in our hearts and change us, we pray that it would be done in your name, that it would be true to your word, and that it would be adequately and appropriately applied, not only by this one speaking, but also by all of us who hear. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So first we will be reading Lord's Day 32. Question and answer 86. We have been delivered from our misery by God's grace alone through Christ and not because we have earned it. Why then must we still do good? To be sure, Christ has redeemed us by his blood, but we do good because Christ by his spirit is also renewing us to be like himself. So that in all our living, we may show that we are thankful to God for all he has done for us, and so that he may be praised through us. And we do good so that we may be assured of our faith by its fruits, and so that by our godly living, our neighbors may be won over to Christ. Can those be saved who do not turn to God from their ungrateful and impenitent ways? By no means. Scripture tells us that no unchaste person, no idolater, adulterer, thief, no covetous person, no drunkard, slanderer, robber, or the like, is going to inherit the kingdom of God. Now we will read our scripture passage from 1 Peter 2, verses 1 through 12. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, the living stone rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. And a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Thus ends the reading of God's word. And people of God, let me ask you a question. If you could do anything you wanted and not have a repercussion, what would you do? If you could get away with any sin that you wanted to commit and not be punished, 
Would you? We stop and think of this for some moments. I think we could see how appealing this is to our flesh. This desire to do these things that we want to do and thought and a thought without any punishment, without any threat of error, a threat of any kind of repercussions. Why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't we do this? This is a question that we have to ask ourselves, especially with what we just read in our catechism, that we believe that since we are already justified, why must then we do good? Why must we do good works? Why must we obey? And that's really what this message is about tonight. Why obey? Why are we called to obey? And what we see is that our obedience doesn't merit anything for salvation. So then the question is, what is our motivations? And what we will see in this message is in three points. We will see we obey because of the Lord's goodness, because of the Lord's cornerstone, and because of the Lord's witness. That is why we obey, and we'll walk through that. So we obey first because of the Lord's goodness, and we see this in verses 1 through 3 of our passage. Verse 1 begins with, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Peter is saying this, he says, Therefore, of all that preceded, Therefore, what's true of you in Christ, put away these things. Put off malice, put off deceit, put off hypocrisy. In effect, Peter says, obey because of what's true of you. Obey because of these things that Christ has done. Now, I wonder if any of you are like me, that when you hear a list of things you're supposed to do, you kind of just tune out. I mean, we already know what we're supposed to do. We already know what's right and wrong. In fact, the messages that talk about obedience are some of the most boring at times. Why obey? It's not exactly a thrilling topic. But why do we obey? If we look at the list of sins that Peter mentions here, we might think in our heads that we have, we have it down, we know what's right and what we should do, but then we read this list and we're brought up short. We look and we realize, envy, I... I envy all the time. Hypocrisy, well, who's a, big, who's a bigger hypocrite than me? And thus we're called to obey this standard. But why? Sure, Paul says, therefore, yes, obey because of this, but why? Peter says, to put off all evil because we are no longer those who are enslaved to these things. He says, instead, to crave pure spiritual milk. Now, what is this pure spiritual milk? On a surface reading of the text, we might think it's simply God's word, and most commentators say it's just that. This pure spiritual milk is God's word, but it would be more accurate to say that this pure spiritual milk is God himself who we receive in his word. We're not after a mere head knowledge. We're not after mere theology, mere biblical knowledge. We want to know God. That is the milk we have. That's also why we obey. He says, now that you've tasted that the Lord is good, well, if we have tasted that the Lord is good, would we not obey him? Would we not desire to obey him? Would we not want to do everything we could to please him because he is good? We obey because of the Lord's goodness. And the imagery of milk here is powerful. We this morning, t- 
talked about Psalm 131 and this weaned and unweaned child. And here again, we have this imagery of milk and a child. As a child would crave this milk, so are we to crave God and his word. We are to crave him and to desire him more than anything else. And Peter goes on to say why this would be. But the question is, do we crave him? One of the easiest things that we can lose in our daily lives is devotions. It's one of the quickest things that we don't have time for. We all feel it. I feel it. You get busier the morning and you think, oh, I, I could get more sleep if I slept in and just didn't do devotions. I'll do it later. And then slowly, slowly what happens is they're just gone. Devotions are gone and we just don't really have anything to replace it with. And I would ask the parents who are here tonight, what about your children? Are you putting on display a desire for God's pure spiritual milk that your kids would see that? Do you desire it yourself? And even for the children, are you seeking out this milk? Are you seeking this out as your own faith? We all need to ask ourselves this. And Peter says in verse 2, that by it you may grow up in your salvation. That's what happens when we have this milk. This is what happens when we are obedient to God, when we seek to glorify him. We grow up in our salvation. He is saying, seek this milk so that you do grow up in your salvation. These aren't just light, meaningless matters here. This isn't just, it's a good idea, have devotions, it's, it's a good idea, read God's word, be nourished by it, that's beneficial. No, he's saying so that you grow up in your salvation. Not only that you'd be sanctified, but that you would persevere. Now, of course, the perseverance of the saints is something that God does and works out in us. But how does he do it? He does it by us daily being in his word. Daily taking advantage of the means of grace through the sacraments, through the preaching of his word, and through our own study of it. This is what we are given. This is how we grow up. This is how we persevere. It is a work of God. But these are the means he uses to bring it out. Paul says something similar to this in Philippians. He says, To work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Work out your own salvation. It's God who works it in you. You have these two sides. Well, how does that happen? Well, he does it through many means, and one of it, well, one of it is through his word and through us desiring that. And all this, again, is answering why do we obey? Because of his goodness. Because of this milk that we see that he offers, because we are nourished by it, this is why we obey. And so, we move now to our second point. Why do we obey? And this is because of the cornerstone. And we see this in verses 4 through 10. Verses 4, four through 10, we see that Christ is our cornerstone and how our relationship to him and what that means, what that brings about. This imagery of Jesus as a living stone and this cornerstone. And I think we'd all understand what a cornerstone is. A cornerstone in the ancient world was the most important stone in the foundation of a structure. 
It had to be perfectly level, perfectly square, so that every stone could be built off of it, that the foundation would be strong, straight, level, and true. And this is what Jesus is for us in the church. He is this cornerstone for us. He is what we live, not only patterned after, but what we live with in union. This is a perfect illustration of Christ and his church. But what we see in these verses is that there are two sides to this cornerstone. There's one of union, but there's one of stumbling and rejection. When Jesus came into the world, it divided it. It split it. There's two camps. There's either one being joined to this cornerstone or there's one that's not. And these verses show exactly what the outcome is for each of these two camps. That's what verse 5 is saying, that the temple of the Old Testament was merely prefiguring what Christ would build upon himself. That we are the church, and the church then are those who are joined to him in this building project and in union with him. And Peter is saying, obey because you are part of this structure. Obey because you are joined to this cornerstone. Because each one of us here, for those of us who believe, we're a stone in his church. We are united to this cornerstone. We are part of this building project. And we obey, as verse 6 and 7 make clear, that the only way to avoid the shame of stumbling over the cornerstone is to believe in him, is to obey him, to obey the command to have faith, and thus to live differently. We too often forget that obedience is not primarily to achieve something for ourselves. It's very easy to slip into this. Why do we obey? So that God will love us. That's what we think. We will obey so that God will love us, so that we can draw nearer to him. Well, the fact of the matter is, our obedience is gratitude for what's been done for us, and that's it. Remember, at the beginning of this message, we read what the catechism said, since you are already justified. So our obedience is nothing else other than gratitude for being built and joined to this cornerstone. Lord's Day 32 says, If Christ has accomplished all this, why must we do good? We do good because Christ, by his Spirit, is also renewing us to be like himself, so that in all of our living we may show that we are thankful to God for all he has done for us and so that he might be praised through us. Well, the fear Christians have always had is that such wonderful gospel news would breed in us sin. If you remove the threat of punishment, would we still obey? If all this is true, then then what? Won't everyone go and sin? And I would ask, what's a better motivation for obedience? Is it the threat of judgment or gratitude? Now, the culture we live in, we might think, well, the only thing that works is the threat of punishment. Our society has to function on that, that there needs to be some sort of punishment for an action, and that will bring about obedience. But really, the best form of obedience is gratitude. Would you rather have your children obey you because they're afraid of a punishment or because they love you? Well, our walk is no different. Christ does not desire us to obey because we think something might happen to us. 
We might have some consequences that we have to go through. No, he wants us to obey because we are joined to him. He has saved us from our sin and our enslavement, joined us to himself. And thus we are to obey because we are thankful. The other thing I can ask is, how is it working for our obedience based off of this threat of punishment? Or do you find in your own life that you will only be obedient so far as that fear of punishment is there, but as the desire to sin increases and the fear of the punishment's gone, then you will sin? You see, the motivation to be, to be obedient because of a fear of a punishment isn't a good one. It only lasts as long as we're afraid of that punishment. But the reason for obeying out of love, that's so much stronger. Why would we not disobey God? Well, because we love him and it doesn't matter what our sin wants us to do. That's what we are growing up for. That's where we are being brought. And that's how you overcome this sin and that's how you obey Verses 7 and 8 show us the other side of this cornerstone. The imagery is a little bit clearer in the ESV. The ESV says, So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That's what we've been saved from. We've been saved from finding offense in Jesus Christ. Earlier this passage said that we have tasted that the Lord is good. We know he is good. The world doesn't though. For those of us who don't trust in God, we don't know that he is good. In fact, we are ashamed of him. We find offense at him. But notice what these verses are saying. Who are those who find offense? It's the builders. Who are these builders? Well, this is the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, the priests, the scribes, the teachers. They should have known Jesus better than anyone else. And when he came, they examined him and they found that he was shameful. They thought they had it all figured out. They thought all they had to do was be ceremonial clean, keep the law, and they would make it to the promised land, they would make it to heaven, that they would be saved this way. Often we live exactly the same way. Thinking that we need to be good so that we'll be saved. Or even if it's not so far, thinking that we must be good so that God will accept or, or love us or, or that our love, his love for us will grow. That's the way we think. That's the way the builders thought. And this type of thinking made them reject Christ because what he was offering was too good. He was coming and saying, I have paid this penalty. All you need to do is believe. And they said, that can't be. Shameful. And what did they do? But they tried to destroy it. They tried to destroy God's cornerstone. Sometimes we are so familiar with the drama of God's word that we utterly miss this. Sometimes we can miss so easily that we fall into the same trap. How great is the gospel that we are saved and we don't need to achieve that through our obedience. 
But yes, we need to obey. And this is where that tension comes in, that healthy tension. But our obedience is not because we are seeking salvation. We're seeking to glorify God. This is the best reason, the best motivation to be obedient. Now, I'm not saying this so that we can feel superior to those who don't believe. That's the wrong response, and we would never want that. We're saying this, we're thinking of this so that we will see what this grace that God has given us is. The depths of it. And Peter is reminding his audience of this. But there is also this warning that we must take. It was God's people who didn't accept this. It was God's people who didn't accept how great their Savior really was. Let's not fall into the same error. But let's not also fall in the opposite error of then thinking that we can live any way we want. The gospel and its goodness and its great love makes us want to obey God more and respond in that way. Verses 9 and 10 say, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's why we obey right there. There is no better form of motivation than that, than to glorify God, to proclaim his excellencies to proclaim what he has done in our lives. The question is, do we seek to glorify God in this way, in light of all he has done? One commentator said that the message of the gospel is not about having a comfortable life, having good marriage or a good job. It's about the supremacy of Jesus Christ manifesting itself by the way we live in the world. And that moves to our third and final point. Why obey well, we, see, we, we saw we obey because of the Lord's goodness, we obey because of the Lord's cornerstone, and now we obey because of the Lord's witness. Verses 11 and 12 say, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such, God, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. These verses are saying that we do good for our witness so that others might see the Holy Spirit's work in our lives and thus be brought to God himself. Question and answer 86 says, And we do good so that we may be assured of our faith by its fruits and so that by our godly living our neighbors may be won over to Christ. You see those two reasons there. One, that we'd be assured. Because what would give you more confidence in your faith than that you are being obedient? But the other reason that it lists is what we've mentioned here, that our, our neighbors may be won over to Christ. And I came across this quote from one commentator, and this is really important and it struck me. It actually scared me when I read it. He says, The world takes its notions of God, most of all from the people who say that they belong to God's family. They read us a great deal more than they read the Bible. They see us. They only hear about Jesus Christ. Doesn't that make you come up short? 
Because are you prepared for that? The unbelievers in the world are most likely not going to pick up a Bible and read it. That happens, but that's not the norm. Where do they get their knowledge of who Christ is? It's from his people. It's by you. It's by me. It's by us. It's by what we do. That forms the world's perception of Christ. Now, isn't that calling us to obey then? We don't want to sin. We don't want to be like the world and drag our Savior's name through the mud because of how we live. That's not our desire. This passage talks about being pilgrims and foreigners on this planet. That this isn't our final home. Yet we seek so often to be part of this world. We seek so often to be accepted by it. You know, it's easy to spot someone who's not from the country generally. If you go to a country that isn't, you know, Western European, for most of us that is, you'd be spotted very quickly as being a foreigner. Yet, would we be spotted very quickly as being a Christian in this life? By the way we live, by what we say, how we act, would people know what we are? And that's not me saying you're going out and constantly telling everyone you know, you know, you're bringing them a religious track and, you know, reading the Bible with them. You can do that, but we're not required to do that in every instance. I'm talking about our day-to-day living. Someone who's observing us, what are they going to see? This is why it scared me to think that we have that privilege, but also that responsibility. But nevertheless, that's what we have been given. That's what God has called us to do. We all feel the the draw of the world and being accepted by them. We all sense that. The last thing we want is for people to see us and think we're weird or to think we're these Christians that are, are odd and not like the rest of them. And so we want to fit in. Wonder how many even experience this. If you if you pray out in public when before your meal when you're out to eat, is there do you sense something of an almost an embarrassment? That if I pray right now, people are going to see that I'm a Christian. I certainly have felt that. Sometimes you have the thoughts going through your mind, when can I pray where no one's going to see me? Well, that's just terrible. It's a horrible response. We obey. Because we want people to see us and to see our Savior in the proper light. That's our motivation. We have no shame when we wear our sport team's logos. We could even go to another country and wear a United States sweatshirt, and that's acceptable. But the thing that we proclaim as the most important thing in our lives, our faith, we are often very reluctant to let people know. You know, I'm speaking generally, I'm not saying all of us are like this, some of us struggle with this more than others, but we all need to hear it. And so this is why we obey, we obey because we desire to be witnesses of our Lord. And we have seen these three reasons that should motivate us. Notice that all these reasons are based on positive things. We obey because the Lord is good and we seek to be nourished by him and we seek to bring out his goodness in our lives 
We obey because we are joined to his cornerstone and part of his church, and we are already priest kings because of what Christ has done, and so we will follow that as what we are, and we obey because we seek to witness to those around us. And so how would we answer the question we started with this evening? If you could do anything you wanted and still be saved, would you sin? That's the question. Well, the answer is no, we wouldn't. The threat of punishment has never hung over Christians. Once you are saved, you don't obey because you are afraid of being punished. Jesus paid that. Thus, all our obedience is gratitude, and that's so much, of, so much superior than any type of fear that would lead us to obedience. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word, for your gospel. We thank you for its grandness and its greatness. And we know that we are called to obedience. We know we're called to do what is right. But we thank you that even though we will fail at this, you have paid it. And thus may our response be only one of gratitude and love for what you have done for us. And may this light a fire in our hearts that would be much stronger than a fear of punishment. May you overcome the temptations that each of us struggle with. May we seek to be obedient. May we seek to trust in you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.